It is really hard to take a look at Romans 8, particularly the first few verses of Romans 8, without really backtracking into Romans 7. Because it is from Romans 7 that Romans 8 has its context. While I recognize there is also a shift, at least a bit, in, in what the path, this particular passage is declaring. As I've, I've shared with you before, we've talked about this, and again, your mileage may vary on this as well, but, but I, I interpret Romans 7 as the life of a Christian that is struggling in the faith, the life of a Christian who is struggling with their own flesh, uh, there are other views on that that I mentioned to you that there are some who believe that Paul is writing about his own life prior to becoming a Christian. Although, again, on Wednesday night, I, I brought to your attention that the verbs in Romans 7, verses 14 through 25 are all in the present tense. And that, that I believe Paul is talking about a current experience I, 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 I don't want to say this but I'm going to say this but don't well yeah hold me to it everything I say you hold me to right uh, but I think to some degree it is a normative experience that each and every Christian struggles in some place and in some form in their life and it is defined for us in the book of Romans chapter 7 verses 14 through 25. And really, it, it, I, I think when we look at Romans 7 and then, and then take what Paul has written to us in Romans chapter 8, it's, it's a recognition, hopefully, that if it weren't for Jesus saving us, of course, we would be lost if it weren't for the Spirit of Christ indwelling us, empowering us, we would have such difficulty um, even living the Christian life, even more than I think we all experience. Because I don't know about you, but at least as I shared with you guys in the past, I struggle at times with my own flesh, and I'm sure I'm not alone here. I'm sure that we all struggle with our own worldly, carnal nature that is still a part of us uh, that is in the process of being sanctified. And so th that's how I'm approaching this particular passage. And, and so I want to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 7 just to kind of get a bit of a running start. But, I, but I'm really going to uh, focus more on verses 24 and 25, and, and then I'm going to touch on uh, chapter 8, verse 1 a bit. There's some things about chapter 8, verse 1 um, that we need to talk about as far as uh, different translations, which is really not my favorite topic to express on a Sunday morning. I'd rather talk about this on a Wednesday night when we're doing more of a Bible study. But nonetheless, this is where we're at, and so we're going we're gonna to address this this morning. So uh, chapter 7, verse 21, 
of the book of Romans from the New American Standard 2020. It says, I find then the principle that evil is present within me. And you could also read that out of the New King James. I find then the law that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. Wretched man that I am, who, by the way, that's masculine, by the way. Uh, just thought I'd throw that out there for you ladies. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding and that you would help us, Lord, to glean from this passage. We pray for your Holy Spirit to, to speak to us this morning. Lord, help us to set aside possible preferences we might have about translations and other things and help us to hear that which you have to say to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body, this body of this death? Interesting question. What is he talking about? What is he saying? This word wretched uh, in the Greek is only found another time in the Bible, in the New Testament, that is, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, where, it, where Jesus is describing uh, the church of Laodicea, and one of the uh, adjectives he uses to describe them is wretched. And, and so uh, he, asks, he, he, he sees himself as a wretched person, that is, someone who is in a, a miserable, distressed condition. He is in a miserable, distressed condition. Uh, and what's going on here is Paul is coming to the end of himself. I'm going to come back to that. But Paul is coming to the end of, him, of himself when he expresses this. It, it's, it's, it's like when you try and try and try and try and try and try to do something. 
Because there's certain, I have a saying as I'm getting older, there are certain things that I'm really good at, and then there's everything else, okay? Certain things I'm good at, there's everything else. And, and there are certain things that I can try, and I can try, and I can try, um, and not succeed. Throw a, a nice calculus equation in front of me. <laughs> I may not even try and try and try and try. I may just look at it and say, no, I can't do it. There is, and we see this with people, particularly with people who have certain habits. They try and they try and they try and they quit. And they, they finally get to the point where they give up and, and it's like, you know, wretched person that I am. Paul is trying and he's trying to live the Christian life and he's realizing that, that although there may be bright spots in his life, that he's often falling short. And, and he's frustrated, I think, with his lack of sanctification, with his lack of consistency. And, 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 and so it, it's at the place where Paul comes to the end of himself. And what I have found in my own life, what I have found... In, in the life of, of many, many others, is that we, until we really come to the end of ourselves in a, in a given situation, until we really come to the end of ourselves, we will not embrace the power of the Holy Spirit to be more than conquerors, as the end of chapter 8 in the book of Romans says. Because until we come to the end of ourselves, we will keep trying, we will keep trying, we will keep, why, why wouldn't we, right? And Paul's beside himself, he's exasperated because he's come to the end of himself. He is in a miserable, distressed condition. You see, as I think about this, is that not the calling that God places upon his people? Let me, let me back that up. Calling's probably not a good, probably not a good exp- uh, a description. Is that not the place where God waits for his people to come so that he can finally do something with them? Think of Moses. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life getting the education uh, of the world in a highly advanced culture in Egypt. He spent the first 40 years of his life learning that he was a someone or a somebody. And then, of course, if you remember, he had to flee for his life and he goes out and he hides in the desert. How long was he out there? 40 years. And he spent 40 years of his life taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Now, I've already told you about in-laws, right? So I'm not going to repeat that. But, but he's working for his father-in-law for 40 years, caring for his father-in-law's sheep. 
He spends 40 years of his life where God allows him to come to the end of himself, recognizing that he is a no one or a nobody. And I think it's my opinion that when he finally got to that point, it was then that God ignited the burning bush in Exodus 3. Because if you remember the story, God calls Moses to go deliver the people. Moses, according to the book of Hebrews, has already had this idea of delivering the people of Israel that were, was in his heart, and yet he tried to do it on the strength of his own flesh, trying to kill an Egyptian. That's why he got sent into exile into Egypt, excuse me, into the desert. And when he talks to God at the burning bush, he doesn't want to go and deliver the people. He's basically telling God, go send someone else. I can't speak. That's how Aaron got into the picture. And he reluctantly agrees and allows God to use him. And he spends the next 40 years of his life realizing that God takes a no one and makes them a someone. But he had to come to the end of himself first. I think Jesus really talks about this in the Sermon of the Mount. In the Beatitudes. What's the first Beatitude? It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the whom? The poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of being poor, and I did some digging in this particular word that's used or translated poor into the English from the Greek. And it, it really, it can be used in a number of different ways, but it can also be used to describe someone who is lacking any kind of spiritual worth. Any kind of spiritual worth. He's up there on the Sermon on the Mount and he kicks off the whole Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and the very first Beatitude he uses are blessed is the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is a word that is used to describe someone who is dependent upon others and in their life they have been reduced to begging. Think about the homeless out there. Translate that into the spiritual realm. And Jesus says the person who is a spiritual beggar is blessed. Do we, see, we don't think about these things often. That, that our understanding of what Christianity is really all about, our understanding of what our life in Christ is really all about, is often flipped upside down to what the Lord intended and how he instructed us in his word. But is, this word is poor, is dependent upon someone else, reducing to being a beggar, and, and it conveys this idea of being utterly destitute. And the only way they survive is living off of, off of handouts. It is the same word that is used and is applied to Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, verses 20 and 22. Lazarus, the parable of Lazarus, the rich man. 
where Lazarus was a beggar and he would, he would sit at the table and, and, and gather up the crumbs that fell on, uh, uh, under the table? What this is expressing to us is that our utter spiritual destitution. And Jesus is saying to us in the book of Matthew, it is that person who enters into the kingdom. See, that's tough. See, I could actually make a case with this to saying that Romans 7 is talking about Paul pre-Christian, but I still don't believe that, all right? I just threw that out there just for you to think. Paul is recognizing, he's recognizing his destitute state and his inability to live the Christian life and he's declaring himself as wretched. Now, wretched and poor, they're two different words in the Greek. I just want you to know that, but I think the concepts are the same. Because all those other uh, beatitudes are given to us but it begins with us becoming poor in spirit, destitute in spirit, recognizing our spiritual lives and, and, and getting away from this nonsensical type of thinking that, uh, that I think that we fall into a trap from time to time of trying to grade on a curve. Ever had teachers, they don't do this in, I don't think they do it in undergrad. I know they don't do it in graduate school. But high school, they grade on a curve. And I liked it when they graded on a curve if I was in a class that people were not quite as studious as I was, right? But if they were more studious than I was, then I didn't like the fact that the teacher would grade on a curve. But God does not grade on a curve. We grade on a curve. We see ourselves as not as spiritual as the next person or more spiritual than the other person, one of the two. We, we want to do the totem pole. I call it totem pole Christianity, where we want to rank ourselves somewhere. Uh, and most of the time, we like to put ourselves right in the middle. We want to be right in the middle. We don't want to be too high. We don't want to be too low. We're kind of right in the middle, right? That way, nobody bothers us. We, I've, heard, I've heard people say this, actually. God doesn't grade on a curve, but God calls those, identifies with those who recognize that they are helpless and that they need to receive the help of the Holy Spirit, not only to save them, but also to sanctify them, to move them forward in their Christian life. Uh, in, in, uh, in Psalm 51, David's, David's prayer of repentance David's prayer of repentance was David a Christian before he prayed the prayer. Now, we, we, I'm using that term loosely. Was he a follower of Yahweh? Yes, he was. Okay? You could say he was a Christian. All right? Maybe it's a stretch. Anyway, you get the idea. But was he a follower of Yahweh? Was he a, a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before he prayed the prayer in Psalm 51? Absolutely he was. But he recognizes in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, 
These, O God, you will not despise. He recognizes and declares to God his brokenness. And he understands that often it is that we don't truly come to God until we are broken. We kind of come to God partially, I think. Until we recognize our own wretchedness. See, as long as we think we can do it ourselves, we'll live in Romans 7. That's who we are. That's what we will be. And we will continually ask, who will set me free from this body of, from the body of this death? I wonder at times when I hear, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this. I'll probably edit it later. <laughs> but anyway, I wonder at times when I hear people say, well, I just want the Lord to come back and get me out of this mess. Are they asking Romans 7.24 who will deliver me from this body of death? Or have they resolved that the times in which we live have been, currently are, and always will be God's times? This is God's time. This isn't our time. This is God's time. And he will come when he's ready. And he will come when it has been foreordained. And therefore, until he comes, we are called to live in a place that because we no longer have condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. And go forward in the strength of and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Recognizing the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free from all of that stuff. No, we're not perfect. Moses wasn't perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. I already referred to David. He wasn't perfect. Peter wasn't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. But when we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we move forward because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And so he continues in verse 25. He says, thanks be 
to God. He asked the question, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he's recognizing that, that and he's thanking God for the work of Jesus, for the work of Jesus on the cross who has set us free. Yet he also recognizes that in one hand, uh, I myself, with my mind, with my mind, it really refers to that inner person that we read in chapter, excuse me, verse 22 of chapter 7. I myself, with my mind, I am serving the law of God. I'm serving the law of God that in chapter 7, verse 12, says it, the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So I'm doing it in my mind. I know it's right. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. The law of sin that he wrote about in Romans 7, 21. That he wrote about in Romans 7, 23. I find then the law, 21. I find then the law that, is ev that evil is present with me. Verse 23, I see a different law in the parts of my body. And, and that, uh, this, where he says here the law is, 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 he, he's, is, is given to us in a present tense. I'm serving the law. Where it says I am serving the law of God. Uh, it's in a present tense. That word serving is in the present tense. So in his mind he's serving the law of God. But he, in the other, he is also serving with his flesh the law of sin. So he leaves us in verse 25 conflicted. Did you catch that? He leaves us in verse 25 unresolved. Recognizing the dilemma. With my mind, I serve the law of God. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There's no, there's tension there. Do you see that? There's huge tension there. And he does not resolve it. He simply declares, therefore, now, there is no condemnation at all to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's willing to live with the tension of his carnal nature, yet he's still going to strive and remind himself that he is not under condemnation. Because when I realize that I'm no longer on condemnation, what does it make me want to do? What does it make you want to do when you realize that you are not under condemnation? Does it make you want to go out and sin some more? I hope not. Because when I recognize the conflict and the tension and the battle and the struggle between the flesh and the spirit of my own life and I'm reminded again of Romans 8 where it says I'm not, I'm no longer, a, there is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I read that, I'm thinking, wow, you love me that much? You really love me that much that even though I mess up a lot, 
Probably more than even some of you. Not as much as some of the other ones. Never mind. Anyway, there's the, there's the, there's the comparison grading on the curve again, right? That, that, that even though I mess up, I am not under condemnation at all. That moves me to want to serve him more. That moves me to want to please him more. That moves me to even love him more, to recognize, wow, you have, you have really made a way for us. See, the law of sin, sin has the power to deceive us. Sin has the power to deceive us. Remember, in this chapter, chapter 7, and earlier in this book, Paul personifies sin, talks about it as if it's a person, and, and it deceives us, and it causes us to be in a place where we, can where we think we can trust ourselves, even when we're not aware that we're doing it. And so what the law does, it exposes that evil, the law of God, that is. What the law does, it exposes that evil force and it drives us to a place of wretchedness that then we might cry out, Lord Jesus, this is your problem and you've got to fix it because I can't. Again, the tension is there. It is not resolved. And so, let me read to you verse 1 of chapter 8 from the New American Standard. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me read it to you again out of the New King James. Therefore, Excuse me, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Same verse, <clears throat> different sayings. There's a discrepancy. It's a huge discrepancy, in my opinion. Now look down to verse 4. Since most of you have New King James, I'll read it to you out of verse 4, or from the New King James that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, what's going on here? New American Standard again. Therefore now there is, uh, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. What you have going on here is you have different manuscripts and you have different translation philosophies, okay? I did a lot of digging. I did more reading about this than you are probably even interested. And I want to say ahead of time, particularly that uh, I know a lot of people who really prefer the New King James translations reading of Romans 8.1. They like this idea of walking not in the flesh, but walking in the spirit, and so do I. And of course, it is repeated in chapter or in verse four. So it is a part of the context of the text. However, 
depending on who you read, it is not in the best or oldest manuscripts. In verse 1. Verse 1, in what is considered... The, now, best is a relative term, okay? All right? Now, what, what's interesting, and maybe you guys have this uh, in your New King James, um, the preface. You guys ever read the preface of your Bible? You should. You should read the preface because it, it tells you why they interpreted in the way that they did. Okay, so it's important, I think. It's important to read these things. And so the New King James would tell you that best is a relative term, and, and I would agree with, with, with whoever wrote the preface of the New King James. Best is a relative term. However, and I went to very conservative commentators and very conservative Bible scholars. Now, uh, conservative Bible scholars who are proficient in the languages now, not just taking a few classes like I did, but proficient. And, 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 and they will tell you that the earliest and the best witnesses of both what's called the Alexandrian text and the Western Texas text that they have, they, they, they do not have this last part of verse 1 in their text. They don't have it. Now, I wanted to go to somebody very conservative, so I went to Dr. Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside. You know, you're familiar with Harry Ironside, aren't you? He was a Plymouth Brethren. You can't get much more conservative than a Plymouth Brethren. Am I right, folks? All right? <laughs> okay. I'm not. I'm, I'm just making an observation here. That's all. Harry Ironside says to us, and I quote, I rarely quote people, all right? He said, careful students of the original text discover that the last part of Romans 1 in the King James Version is an interpolation, in other words, an insertion, properly belonging to verse 4. That's what he's telling us. Now, I abbreviated it. He went on and on about this, but I don't want, didn't want to take a long time. But I, again, I wanted to go with the more conservative language scholars, Ironside being one of them. Vincent being another one essentially says the same thing. He's not a language scholar, but he was a well-respected uh, commentator uh, whom I read, and that's Warren Wiersbe, who says the same thing, Okay. Chances, now, if you want to take the last part of verse 1 and say that scripture, God bless you and do it. I don't care. I think what we have to be careful of is that we, when we see something in the scripture that we really like, but it may be questionable whether it's part of the original text or not, we have to go do the, 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 the background work. We have to look at the textual criticism to understand whether this is really true. One of my favorite verses in 1 John, it refers to the Trinity that the <clears throat> there are three who bear witness, the water, the spirit, and, and, and the blood, and these three are one. I love that verse. It's a very biblical verse. It, it, it spells out the Trinity. It's probably not in the original text. Remember when I taught on that? You, some of you might remember it. But I, and there are times when things were inserted. Now, 
You also have this idea of walking in the spirit, not in the flesh, that's given to us in verse 4. So it's not something that's pulled out of, out of, out of uh, left field. It is believed by some commentators that it was inserted by some scribes because this idea, now this is speculation. Follow me, this is speculation, but I'm going to speculate with you and let you think about it. This idea of therefore now, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus was just too good to, to, to leave by itself. They did, couldn't believe this idea of grace. Because if it does say, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, it's making condemnation conditional. Therefore, it is not grace. Okay, I'm going to repeat that because I got some funny looks. If we say that there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, we have just made condemnation conditional. Then in other words, if you walk in the Spirit, you're not condemned. But if you don't walk in the Spirit, guess what? Then you are condemned. That's what it's saying. To me, it's not a good insertion. Some of you are still chewing on this. Good. Think about it some. I wrestled with this for days going, oh, no, I'm going to hate Sunday. Yes, we want to walk in the Spirit. No, we don't want to walk in the flesh. Yes, I like it being there in the New King James, but, it's, but again, the more I thought about it, I realized that it's, it's not a good, it, 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 it doesn't make sense with the flow of what Paul was saying in Romans 7 particularly how I interpret Romans 7 as talking about the life of the struggle of a Christian, but recognizing we are no longer in condemnation. There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in, condem uh, who are in Christ Jesus. You see, this idea of no condemnation is, is an incredible, it's a tremendous truth. And it comes to us at, this, at the conclusion. Remember what I've told you before, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions are not divinely inspired. At least the first four verses of chapter 8 should belong, I believe, in chapter 7. It really sums up the argument that we're not condemned. You see, we have no conditions to meet. Okay, light bulb's starting to come on now, aren't it? We have no conditions to meet. What do you have to do to be saved? What do you have to do to be born again in the Spirit, therefore not being condemned? Do we do anything? Do we merit anything? Do we, do we, do we perform in such a way that all of a sudden God loves us and decides that we're good people and, and, and therefore now we're no longer condemned? No, we cast ourselves on the mercy of God and cry out to him and ask that he have mercy upon us sinners. We recognize our wretchedness. I didn't look it up, it just kind of came to mind, but remember Jesus tells the story of the, of the Pharisee and the publican that are praying, and the Pharisee gets up and he prays, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. God, I thank you that I'm not like this person and that person and that person, and I'm definitely not like this tax collector over here. 
And the tax collector, the publican, would not even look up to heaven, but I'm going to get that guy. But he would not even look up to heaven, but, but he beat on his chest. And what did he say? He said, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And Jesus told them, telling us that it was that man, the tax collector, who therefore walked away justified, who therefore now had no condemnation because he recognized his depravity and cried out to God to save him. This is, to me, this is just powerful stuff. See, in Christ, we're not condemned. In Adam, we looked at it earlier in this book, in Adam, we were condemned. But in Christ, we have no condemnation. As I mentioned earlier, Moses. Moses strikes the rock. Abraham lied about his wife. Peter tries to kill a man with a sword. I don't know what he was thinking, right? The ear. He, that's funny because he cut the guy's ear off, which is probably he struck him from the back. I mean, how can it be a lot easier to cut an ear with a sword from the back, which means he's probably right-handed, which means he probably struck the guy as he was running away from him. But anyway, I'll, let you, I'll have to work that out with Peter when I see him. But Nonetheless, we are not condemned because we are in Christ Jesus. We recognize our depravity. We recognize our wretchedness. We recognize that we are poor in spirit and in tr instead of trying to compensate for our spiritual poverty, we cry out to him. And we thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though on one hand, with our mind, we serve the law of God and with our flesh, we serve the law of sin. Because we are under no condemnation because we are in Christ Jesus. That, that is incredible. Incredible news.